0: about wildlife
1: is that it the thing about wildlife is the thing about wildlife thing about wildlife is
0: the thing about wildlife is
1: feeling of interconnectedness that it's humbling is that it's It's insightful intriguing you belong
0: it's about all of us
1: always evokes a sense of wonder doesn't matter why you're here that's
0: the thing about wildlife
1: Hi everyone. I am Ishika, your host on the Thing About Wildlife. Welcome back to another in our season three series that explores the Andaman and Nicobar Islands. Today, I'm in conversation with Dr. Sahir Advani, who is currently a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Maine. While he works at a larger global scale now, we dipped into his experiences from the pre-pandemic era for this episode. From when he conducted his doctoral work across the Andaman and Nicobar Islands. Sahir is interested in finding sustainable solutions to coral reef associated fisheries and the export markets driving them. He has profiled the fisheries of these islands with a focus on looper fisheries. His research spans avenues of marine biology, community based research and conservation, and global economics. This was perhaps the perfect way to bring the podcast's incredible journey through this archipelago to a close, bringing the sea, land and its people together. Here's the episode now. The thing about fisheries and gifting chickens. Hey Sahil, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. It's lovely to see you.
0: Hey Ashika, great to see you too.
1: I'm really looking forward to this because I have a whole bunch of questions for you, which I feel we also haven't covered these topics before on the podcast. So I'm I'm very keen to know your thoughts on a whole lot of things related to the islands, of course, fisheries in general and much more. So we can actually start right at the beginning because... For me now, whenever I think about the islands and fisheries, you're the first person who comes to mind. Uh, But these are, of course, slightly niche fields. And I'm very curious about how you found your way to this work. So what were some of those earlier influences, motivations, or maybe even challenges when it came to this kind of arena of research and work?
0: Yeah, I think my journey to this point has just been like random connections, awesome mentors. And um, I I did my undergrad in Bombay, basically put me on this path towards like uh, thinking about marine systems. Um, when I finished my undergrad and I started my masters uh, again at the University of Mumbai, I was volunteering with uh, another student of or an ex alumni from the from the college, uh, carly DeLima. and so I was working with her in the Chilka Lagoon, uh, basically volunteering on her PhD project, um, studying the interactions between Irrawaddy dolphins and fishing communities over there. And while we were there waiting for our permits at this guest house in near Chilika, bumped into folks um, from Daktion Foundation because uh, they were there on like a turtle action group conference. And so spent some time hanging out with them. And that was kind of my first exposure to kind of some of the wildlife community of folks actually doing conservation work in India. Um, years later, after I'd finished my master's in the UK, and I was kind of looking around for a job, um, I heard about an, a vacancy at Dakhshan, uh for an education officer in the Andaman Islands. And I, I was super keen to visit the islands. I'd been there once before um, for uh, just like learning how to scuba dive. Um, I also had this strange, well, not strange, but I had this back story where my parents actually met in Port Blair. Um, and so when when this opportunity came up, or when this, I saw this application, this job, I applied, uh, got this uh, job. And the first day of the job was basically flying to the Andamans and meeting um, with folks from Dakshin, Mira, and Aarti, uh, Mira Oman, and Aarti Sridhar. and. And so one of my first assignments was the three of us uh, basically got into a car with Manish Chandi and we took a long road trip up to uh, Maya Bandar. And along the way, just like talked about fisheries, hung out with local communities, uh, met with the Karen um, folks there uh, and basically really got a quick drive by tour of fisheries across the Andaman Islands. And then, so while I was kind of doing some of this education outreach work with the Action Foundation, one of the the other things that I was doing was basically preparing a report or, yeah, a report of uh, how fisheries in these islands had changed over all these years, uh, what were some of the drivers, and kind of a snapshot of, of what had been going on in that fisheries marine space, particularly in light of, like, all the major events that have happened there. Uh, including the the 2004 tsunami and yeah so that was one of my first exposures to the islands and kind of what set me down this path.
1: That's a really interesting journey for sure because I think you started off mentioning how uh, you've had some awesome mentors and then all the names you just said are just such fantastic people to work with. Uh, So it's, you know, now it just makes sense that you had such a rich uh, early set of influences towards uh, the marine world and fisheries. So also maybe walk us through the chronology of all the work you've done over time in the Andaman and Nicobar Islands because, um, so this was new to me. I didn't realize that you actually began with more educational and outreach work, but I'm guessing that also gave you access to the social space of the islands more, perhaps um, since you were getting to interact with a lot of people uh, and perhaps also contributed to the things you wanted to ask questions about because your work of course covers many avenues from coral reef associated fisheries you've done anthropological work you've looked at culture settlement histories seafood supply chains so what was the chronology of this how what led into the other
0: yeah so I think in that kind of sense I was super fortunate where work with Dakshin they kind of they gave me free reign. They said, "Hey, we want you to kind of develop a research program in the islands, but we want you to do it in a way that's organic." So, literally, they, the trustees encouraged me to go hang out with fishermen on a daily basis. Just, just have cups of tea. You just go down to the dock, uh to the jetty, and just like see the fish being landed. Just hang out, get to know the people, get to know the place, get to know what was going on. Um, And even that trip with Manish was also super informative now that I look back at it because Manish had this awesome way of just like hanging out, just gelling with folks. Like some person who we'd met for like five minutes ago, like this guy was his lifelong friend, arm around his shoulder. Like these guys are chilling and chatting like they've been like they've known each other for donkey's years. And so that kind of introduction was really helpful for me as someone who's been trained in marine ecology and like fishery science um, to really get a sense of what social scientific research, ethnographic research could be um, in a very embedded way. And so with Dakshin, when I had this freedom to kind of develop my own research program and when I was kind of compiling this report, one of the other things that really stuck out to me was there was this really big commodity fishery for the leopard coral trout, which is this beautiful red-colored um, grouper that's kind of an apex predator on coral reefs uh, in various parts of the world. Uh, but here in the Antuan Islands, it was considered a trash fish up to the late, the late 90s. Um, when outside... Intermediaries or middlemen came in, or folks involved in seafood trade came in from uh, mainland India. They recognized the value of this um, of this fish and basically started offering lots of money to local communities to buy this fish. Um, Currently, this fish uh, at like peak uh, seasonal time, so the peak season for this fishery, it corresponds to the Lunar New Year and price for this fish. When I was kind, when I was studying it, would be sometimes ten to like fifteen times higher than the market price of just normal fish uh, sold in the market, and so this was a really big commodity. And so, uh, one of the one of the early kind of research proposals that I'd written up and conducted was uh, looking at the origins of this uh, group of fishery. Um, by basically conducting interviews with various fishing communities across the islands to understand how and when they started catching various marine commodities, um, as well as really diving deep into the origins of this fishery, this the group of fishery. Uh, and thereafter, I conducted some other research with um, with support from the Ravi Shankar Inlax Fellowship, and that research looked at uh, the basically the gonads of these fish, because what's really interesting about them is their protogynous hermaphrodites. So they're born females first, and then after they reach a certain age or a certain size, uh, they turn into males. Uh, Now for a fishery, for this particular fishery uh, that's meant for the seafood banquets during Lunar New Year and other big, large banquets, the fish needs to be ideally plate-sized. So they were basically selecting um, smaller size individuals in terms of um, in terms of the fishery. So if, because these individuals had like a really high price and then above say the one point five or two kg mark, um its value basically went down again. And so what this the Ravi Shankaran fellowship was uh, research was trying to understand was um, at what stage do these um, groupers basically become um, uh, are reproductively active? At what stage in their life history do they potentially transition from female to male? Uh, unfortunately, that study was inconclusive because just the gonad samples that we were collecting, they weren't just needed to be modified a whole lot more. Um, but at the same time, what that fellowship also helped uh, ensure was that. I was able to really dig into a lot of seafood trade data for the islands, um, particularly the um, seafood that was exported from the islands uh, via airplanes and via ships. And so uh, through that work, I was able to generate this. Now it's nearly a 20 year data set of fisheries uh, exports from the islands. And that data is extremely valuable to our understanding of how um, these markets have changed, how there are these various, um, yeah, how how there's competition within the various um, seafood sellers in the islands, and potentially what has been the state of fisheries and fish landings in these islands. Because in the absence of good uh, fisheries landings data, this export data, which is pretty meticulously recorded. That data can say speak volumes about uh, just the larger fisheries landings that are taking place. So that was one tangent that I followed. Uh, but the other tangent that really was something that I was really interested in exploring and for a significant amount of time was this question as to uh, the Andamans are again, this unique place where you've got all these different cultures all catching fish and seafood commodities in different ways um, based on the types of gears that they use, um, the different species that they felt, that communities felt that they had some specialty in terms of targeting, um, as well as just their general interests and their access to uh, these export markets. And so that was a question that I was really interested in, in exploring that How do these communities interact with each other? What are their potentially how do they view marine ecosystems? Or how do they value these marine ecosystems? Mm -hmm. And so that was something that I really wanted to explore. And that's what I ended up conducting my doctoral research on uh, from the University of British Columbia, where I explored just how these different communities, one, engaged in different commodity fisheries, but also how they valued marine ecosystems. Uh, the islands and fisheries, as well as how these, uh, uh, these different values could have a role to play um, in the sustainability of how these communities engage uh, in fisheries in these islands.
1: Wow, that just covers such a broad spectrum of many different fields, because of course, there's a lot of uh, work with people and the social sciences there, but there's so much to do with just the ecology of these ecosystems and how they're so interconnected. And I think that's also what has always fascinated me about uh, your work, because I think the very first time we interacted was when you spoke about your work with the group of fisheries and uh, the Dollar Machi, right? the, uh, which is what it was called. Uh, and I remember that talk that you gave so clearly. Um could you also tell us maybe a little bit about why it was called the Dollar Machi? And um, and then maybe I'll come to my other questions.
0: Sure, sure. Yeah, so Grouper or this Plectroformous Lepidus uh, is called Dollar in areas really close to Port player and other areas where you've got these either trade connections or middle that have traveled between there, even fishing communities that have traveled to these big ports and then gone back to their small home ports. Um, And it was called dollar because when this fishery was starting off in in the late 90s, at that point of time, the, the currency conversion was equivalent to almost a dollar. And so to a middleman to kind of encourage fishermen to catch this fish more tried came up with this catchy name that like this fish is called dollar it's going to get you lots of dollars so catch me this fish um and it's just been really fascinating for me that was one of the first my first PhD chapters was just exploring how different communities name different marine commodities and uh, and I was really interested in understanding how they named dollar but even just the The data that they or the the questions that I asked regarding other fish species and the names that communities gave them was also super fascinating because that also displayed various patterns in how communities related to these different um, fish species or marine species as well as the fisheries uh, that they were a part of. Yeah.
1: I think this also very nicely illustrates this interconnectedness between uh, the more social science and the more natural science work that uh, we often tend to do Um, because we talk about how interconnected it all is and how we really can't separate these from the other. But I think your work actually highlights that in many ways. Um, Are there any particular Examples or themes that you have seen emerge through the work that you've done, where you can clearly see how one of uh, one factor, like say uh, the economy or the markets, like you just said, drive uh, certain factors that ultimately feed into the ecosystem or the marine sphere.
0: Yes, there's definitely that in island systems or in isolated systems such as coral reef atolls. Um, External markets, global markets, have a pretty disproportional influence on the trajectories of fisheries over exploitation, the trajectories of different species being targeted, um, as well as just pressure on the reefs and additional, say, pollution and other other negative drivers of coral reef fisheries and coral reef systems. But what, what fascinates To me, is that beyond just that very opaque or very easy to estimate, like this is the influence of markets or travel time to markets, there's this uncertain aspect of just markets don't just exist in isolation. There are obviously like people that bring these markets to these islands or people that basically reinforce these connections or dilute these connections with these global international markets. And these seafood market intermediaries are really important drivers that I feel haven't really been considered enough in academic research Uh, and that's something that I've been really interested in exploring some more and so as part of my work even not for my doctoral thesis I really made it a point to understand the full seafood value chain when I was conducting these interviews with coastal communities and fishing communities and so I was really trying to understand beyond just the views and values of fishermen and fisherwomen, but also um, fish vendors uh, as well as middlemen and seafood exporters. Because understanding their motivations and the roles that they play in these somewhat complex value chains uh, is, is a really important driver in terms of understanding just the different trajectories that islands, reef fisheries, or just reef fisheries in general can take.
1: I think the fact that the interconnectedness is there in theory, but to actually see that happening and playing out uh, must have been really quite an experience. And uh, I can also kind of see why you had so many questions emerge over time as you were working, because clearly there are so many different threads that you can pull at uh, both from the marine ecology side and also from the more social perspective. And I think one of the points that you hit upon which... uh is so crucial is that fisheries in general are perhaps one of the most dynamic economies or systems uh, that we have, Uh, you know, whether you look at it from a people's livelihood perspective or also from a more research or academic perspective. And you, of course, have also spent a large portion of your time looking at how small scale fishers operate. So what exactly are the differences in the scale here? and, And how do you keep up with these daily fluctuations and the general unpredictability of everything that fisheries involves.
0: yeah I think that's that's something that's also I found really interesting and really reflect a lot on that fisheries management as a whole um, in in several parts of especially in India and, and the Andaman Islands just focuses on managing this large fishery where every fisherman is just a unit or every boat is a unit to be managed and doesn't really consider just the, the actual actors involved, the actual communities and the cultural ties and social bonds that hold these communities together and potentially influence the way fisheries are conducted and managed by communities themselves. And so I found it super interesting to work with, uh, or yes, work with, because I was con- basically spending a lot of time conducting ethnographic research with communities as varied from indigenous subsistence, uh, fishers in the Nicobars, as well as some in the Karen community, um, to fishermen who'd be out fishing on a dungi every single day using just a simple hook and line, uh, but basically coming home every night uh, to their families, as well as then um, fishermen who'd be spending multiple days out at sea, uh, sometimes in really large ports with sophisticated fishing gear, um, depth sounders, and um, and these large nets uh, and longliners that that would basically call into port maybe once every month uh, and just offload like a large volumes of their catch, all while sailing through the territories or the Around the islands of these other communities and these other uh, indigenous groups uh, over there. So just the those, just the the just the large variety and scale of fisheries technologies and com- communities uh, inhabiting the Andaman Islands is also Andamanic Islands is also super fascinating to understand, to work with, and to engage with as well. Because uh, I was really fortunate through some of my field work to be able to spend time out fishing um, with, say, a fisherman from Wandu, where we'd spend the whole day just on a reef uh, with a hook and line, like a hand line, uh, basically catching fish, including Dollar and Mirgal and other fish for them to later on sell that evening or else... Um, skin diving with uh some of the work folks that i worked with in the cubas um again catching fish to have later on for dinner that night uh so yeah i was it was really a, a fascinating experience in terms of just the diversity of small-scale fisheries but also just cultural attitudes and just people as well
1: that actually you know brings me to asking you to talk a lot more about your field work itself I'm sure that over time, you must have had several memorable conversations, boat trips or sightings, like you were just saying. And the fact that, you know, you started out early with Manish in the field and you got to watch him in his element. And I'm sure that played a huge role in how you interacted with people over time. Because I think even personally, I've found that people like Manish and even you actually, because you were a part of my early influences when I was doing my master's work in the Nicobar and seeing the, this very nice organic way in which you interact with local communities and also just treat people with respect rather than as data points and just come at research with that degree of humility and humanity. I think that's so beautiful and it also definitely adds a lot of value to the work and research itself. So I'm sure you have a lot of uh, fascinating stories from your time in the field.
0: Yeah, yeah. I have to say, like, Manish has been a really awesome guide. Not even a guide, just like an awesome person, a mentor, or, yeah, a person who kind of show the ropes, but very unofficially in terms of how to conduct good research. Um, so, yeah, first, Manish was the one who kind of introduced me to, like, working in uh, just the Andaman system, generally, working with fishing communities over there with that quick, like, I think it was a week-long, that road trip that we did in the early days, and then just many conversations thereafter at Annette. Um, but then also I remember getting really, I hadn't got a chance or, or I didn't really have sound reasons to travel to the Nicobars uh, before starting my doctoral research. Um, and then when I did start my doctoral research and we were considering the different communities that I, would, I should be considering, uh, when asking these questions that I was asking my thesis, my folks suggest, you know, you should, if you're, if you're trying to do this whole spectrum of like understanding how histories of settlement and uh, access to markets play a role in this, in this hypothesis that you're testing, then you should consider some of the indigenous groups in the islands. And that's where I was like, okay, potentially let me see or consider what work with the Nicobars would be like. Uh, work in the Nicobars would be like, and working with the Nicob various Nicobari's communities would be like. Uh, and I, I, I was apprehensive about it in the, uh, initially because while while the Nicobars were this really exciting place that very few people got to go because of permits, etc., it was also a very alien culture to me, uh, and I have no idea how to conduct myself or what would be appropriate. So I remember like getting to Campbell Bay and i think manish was happened to be in town then and he was making a trip to little nicobar uh and so i tagged along with him uh i didn't end up you, you um, using little nicobar as a study site but it was more me just tagging along with manish to understand what life uh what working what respectful research with indigenous communities in the islands could look like and it was it was a fascinating experience like Um, we were just welcomed very warmly to the, uh, to the village. Uh, Manish basically had a lot of conversations with folks regarding Nipah plantations and other projects that he was doing. And I, um, I basically was a fly on the wall or just a happy guest hanging about just absorbing life, absorbing sounds, absorbing like food and smells and, um, it was it was a really magical trip um, just in terms of exposing me to just some of the issues uh, that communities face because I think one of, a particular instance really stuck out to me and it is something that I uh, continue to think about and consider in some of my uh, work later on is um, on one of those days when we were in Little Nicobar, we basically were visiting this other basti that was down the coast, basically on a part of uh, the island that had really experienced the force of uh, the tsunami. Um, And so there used to be a settlement there, uh, but now there was basically just one house. A lot of the beach north of that air settlement was just, it was just completely just these skeletons of trees just standing out because all the ground beneath it was just, uh, waterlogged with um, salt water for several years um, and so while we were going to this one little nicobari house that's on the small, small corner of this island and just out there there was this um, a boat a fishing boat from um, Campbell Bay and they'd strewn out this long fishing net right in front of this of this beach where these where this community lived and uh, some of the folks on the boat were really upset. They were like, what the hell, this is like our area. Like these guys aren't supposed to be fishing here. And they're, they're just taking away our fish. And that was one of, and there were kids also on the boat. And I remember us like basically pulling up alongside this boat and everyone kind of just looking for lonely at the fish in the boat. That's just being pulled in. Like these men are just hauling hand over hand their nets in uh, with this catch of fish. And I think we ended up trading some of the fish that they caught and just like leaving them with like a stern warning. But that was my first exposure to just some of the, oh, that was not my first exposure, but that was really uh, uh, an instance that really stood out to me in terms of just the justice implications that are involved when fisheries management does not consider um, indigenous groups or subsistence groups in this larger idea of fisheries management where fisheries are managed just for profit. Uh, Or for just the, or just for maximizing catches and not considering about just the day to day existence of fishing communities and coastal groups. Um, So that was one really eye opening trip, uh, this first trip to Little Nicobar. And thereafter, I had many more solo trips um, within the Nicobar Islands, um, which again had some really uh, great stories. I remember once uh, I basically wrapped up. I think a week on Chowra, my food supplies or my rations that I brought with me were kind of coming to an end. The boat was supposed to be coming that day. So I was all ready to basically head to Komota, spend a couple of days there doing some more interviews and uh, meeting with communities there. And then I'd be traveling back to Port Blair and then probably uh, flying back to the mainland uh, to wrap up that field season. And I remember like sitting on the dock, the entire village of Chawra is like, or the entire island of Chawra is like kind of on this dock waiting for this uh, the, uh, waiting for the boat to come. And we see the boat like sail on the horizon and then sail past us on the horizon and then sail off uh, towards the south, just leaving, completely skipping our island. And I ended up being marooned there for like another two, three days because the boat decided to skip Chawra that particular day. And for the communities there, that was like, yeah, that happens, just another day. And that was also like an interesting experience because it ended up being, it ended up uh, giving me a couple more days in Chowra where I had some great conversations with communities there. I ended up helping out in in like a boat blessing ceremony as well. And so it's, yeah, it was, that was again one of those random encounters that, uh, or random chance events that, End up being really good, and they in the end, um, yeah. And otherwise, like tons of other stories in terms of just work in Maya Bandar, uh, where I'd work with Isaac or Wenji, and just the the characters in uh, Maya Bandar who he'd introduce me to, just the the long conversations that he we'd have, um, and even just yeah, if. I really do miss field work in the Andaman Islands, but I, more importantly, I miss the people that I was really fortunate to work with and hang out with uh, while conducting my research. Because that was the thing. Like I also got to hang out with some other amazing researchers. Like in Maya Bandar, Nitya would often uh, have some research ongoing. So I remember hanging out with Nitya and catching... Um, bullfrogs one night and so we all of us just went out into this rice paddy field and for I think a good three hours in the middle of the night we're all just jumping around catching bullfrogs um for Nitya's research yeah
1: (laughs) wow I'm sure you're uh, really searching through so many years of memories to share these stories with me but um I think again, you know, I, especially that one story you told us about just being stranded because the boat decided not to show up that one particular day on this island. Uh, I think I also experienced something similar to that where uh, I ended up spending an extra two weeks in Great Nicobar because they just decided to cancel a couple of ships and um, right at the end where I was planning to head back and I was starting to get really stressed out about whether I would be able to finish my thesis in time and after that initial bit of panic about how can I you know get this delayed to get back it was so nice to just settle in and spend such uninhibited time with my neighbors and the community in the village where I was living and uh yeah, it was it was so nice to have those unencumbered times to just engage with everybody, just as myself and not necessarily as a researcher. It was so so nice to hear these uh, stories from you as well, Sahil.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think if you sit any researcher from the Andaman town, you start to, swapping stories about like travel issues and then the the opportunities or the fun stories that those resulted in, and you could be sitting down for hours. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think uh, there's the idiosyncrasies of traveling across the islands are really really something. I think it's also very fascinating to see how those challenges are perceived by, say, the research community and those who uh, are from the islands and who move about, because I think about two or three ship journeys in once I'd gotten comfortable working in that place, I often started traveling with some of my friends from the islands who are from there either from in the indigenous Nicobaris community or from the settler communities and we would uh, do the ship journeys together and it was always very interesting to see how uh, how differently we perceived every obstacle you know and I think over time I became quite lackadaisical about it and said ah oh, yes these things happen <laughs> and I used to be so stressed about it early on yeah but we, I think that's that's also such a lovely idea to actually collect some of those stories that everyone has uh, has dealt with over time. Yeah,
0: I, I think, I mean, Nitya and I have been talking about this for a while, and I, we started getting something in motion, but I don't know what's the status of it. But basically, yeah, the like kind of humorous tales from the Andaman Islands or researchers, yeah, researchers conducting research in the Andamans. And so one of the stories that I'd contributed was basically this again, this is the trip to Little Nicobar, okay. where um as we were leaving, one of the uh, one of the women from the village like came up to me and and Manish and gave each of us like a chicken. Uh and that, that was like there. Um parting gift. Manish had asked particularly about these chickens in the past because he was really interested in this indigenous variety Um, but me getting a chicken was a bonus as this was like the first chicken I'd ever owned. Um, He was in fact not a chicken, he was a cockerel Um, but basically I I remember being very proud of my of my rooster and so uh, I named him Little Nick after Little Nicobar and, uh, yeah, he basically spent quite a few days at Annette before deciding to run off to the neighbor's household. And he probably isn't around anymore. But, yeah, I'm sure little Nick had a wonderful time uh, switching from his life on little Nicobar to then living in the small little village of Wandur. Later on, in after getting back to Annette, when I was again, brushing up on some of like the ethnographic um, research conducted in the islands, uh, did I come across this passage which talked about how in Nicobari's customs, as a marriage proposal, women often uh, offer uh, suitors, basically, a chicken as a gift. And I remember like someone cracking that joke while we were on Little Nicobar, and I thought nothing of it. And I was like, "Oh, wait!" <laughs>
1: <laughs> I I remember Little Nick because I think uh, Little Nick was still around Annette when I visited uh, the Andamans for the very first time, and I vaguely remember Manish uh, mentioning how uh, Little Nick was a gift from one of the one of the travels. Uh, it's good to know the whole story.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. That way that way do you remember Gunda the Rooster in um Yes. Yeah, no, what was that? What was that be called? Uh was it Bara number? No, it was the last bus on the Campbell Bay Road, right? There was Shastri Nagar,
1: there was, I think
0: that huh. was the last yeah, the last one. Maybe yeah, yeah, probably Shastri Nagar, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. 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 Gunda the rooster. Terrifying people when chasing after that one kid at the bus stop.
1: Oh my gosh, yes. There was another rooster uh, right at Galatia, which was even beyond all of the bus days. And where there was just a forest outpost, which is uh, just on stilts. It's no, no real construction. And there's one rooster there with a small harem of hens that had completely terrorized every person who went there and I think uh, since there's no other rooster to uh, I think direct his aggression at or his territorial uh, you know, instincts towards, he used to take it all out on people. So even the forest guards who were posted there for during the turtle nesting season, they used to be so terrified of him, but they also loved him very much. And they used to lovingly oh, feed yeah. him and take care of him. But uh, there were these sticks put out at every corner, just in case you had to defend yourself immediately because he was so unpredictable. <laughs>
0: Oh yeah, 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 yeah! I'm confusing. I'm confusing story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was talking about that one. Yeah, yeah. that that rooster, <laughs> that kunda.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, what a what a guy! And I I clearly remember there was um, there was one particular Nicobar megapod that used to visit that uh, the forest outpost over there and sometimes uh, sneak food from this rooster and. Uh, Oh, and I remember wow. the, the guards used to say that uh, there is normal murgi and there's jungly murgi, which is the bird, and how they used to go after the same kind of food. <laughs> 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 really so, so funny. Hey, but Sahin, yeah. you know, one thing, uh, one of the stories you mentioned about that first instant, instance of just what social justice looks like, for indigenous communities, that also made me think of uh, how when we do applied research in the ecology or conservation space, very often whether it's uh, you know larger marine bio or terrestrial ecology, very often the outcomes or the recommendations that come out of a study tend to be uh, more community-oriented and more conservation-oriented in the in that sense. But very often, fisheries' outcomes tend to be more directed towards policy. Why do you think that is? And is that really the right way to go? Or is there, like, a gap we are missing?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that goes, like, there's this famous, like, saying, like, fishery science is managing people uh, and potentially and and then there's this other thing which is fishery science is managing fish stocks Uh, but potentially I feel like what both of them are missing is that fishery science is kind of about understanding fish stocks and understanding people rather than this very top-down like this is how things have to be managed um and yeah, like marine policies in particular are very outcome oriented because these marine spaces are just so fluid, so ever changing, and so hard to like mark out that, or even understand in terms of doing efficient um, stock assessments in really data poor conditions. That it ends up being this really heavy handed approach of fisheries management. Which doesn't account for individuals and their livelihoods, um, and just thinks about this bottom line of this is how much the value of this catch is. This is how much, um, how many fish are being landed. And these are, this is how many businesses of fishermen are being supported without thinking all of the other uses, without thinking about all of the other uses of. Marine ecosystems of um, fish as food, as means of uh, as means of livelihood, and means of like uh, basically reinforcing culture. Um, Yeah, I don't know if that really answers your question, but uh, yeah, broadly, I feel like yeah, marine policy is not very, or fisheries management is not very human centric, um, especially in like the in a lot of global um, contexts, especially developing country contexts.
1: Yeah, I think that that definitely does make sense. And I mean, it is a difficult question, and I'm sure there's no one size fits all answer. But I'm guessing that also plays a huge role in island systems where when we talk about things at a policy level, it tends to be like you're saying these much larger top-down initiatives or statements of management rather than really looking at things which are happening on a smaller scale like they do on places like Great Nick or Little Nick with populations under 10,000 where maybe we don't pay as much attention to the needs of, say, a thousand human populations strong indigenous Nicobaris community and exactly what they need or even what kind of rules they govern themselves by internally within their communities. So how does that really play out uh, for these smaller systems and smaller scale fisheries?
0: Yeah, I mean, so if you were to take a blue justice lens, so just a justice lens in this case, um, ultimately justice are three dimensions, right? So there's procedural justice, distributive justice, and um, recognition of justice. So I might be forgetting the third one. But basically, in so specifically in this recognition justice kind of a space, recognizing that there are systemic inequities um, that prevent communities from having an equal voice in how things ought to be and how fisheries ought to be managed um, is bad, uh, where where, the, where these communities have no voice. And so a system that's just would be, would recognize these diverse voices and give them equal weighting, if not more, um, when it recognizes just the systemic inequities that these communities face. So For my work, especially considering like the values of fishing communities across these islands, uh, where you had just this spectrum of like indigenous groups to full-on commercial um, uh, fishermen, there needs to be this recognition of all these different layers of intersectionality, and then the the ways that um, injustices play out. Uh, or inequities arise based on the systems that these people are a part of. And for there to be just fisheries management, there needs to be that the, this value-related research needs to be translated in a way that is uh, that is just, that recognizes these uh, inequities, that um, develops procedures to address them. Um, and that is distributive in how it uh, ensures that this justice occurs
1: that's such an important aspect because I almost never read or hear of anyone talking about it from a justice point of view at all uh and I guess that's also because in order to look at it as justice you need to really think about it from the people's perspective and what it actually means for them in their lives so um uh, I think if if that happens, that is definitely a step in the right direction. But I can see from what you're saying that there are so many challenges associated with actually bringing it down to that level. Um, I also wanted to ask yeah. you, you know, about, um, while we're talking about policy and the conservation space in general uh there are of course many things that could potentially affect the fisheries ecosystem and the fisher communities like you know from natural calamity like you were talking about the tsunami to even covid itself and uh, how it affects each uh scale of fishers and how that in term of affects the ecosystems is something that we know very little about and uh we only know that there are these impacts, but how ex- how they exactly manifest is not something we seem to have a very good grasp on. Uh, but I know that you've recently uh, gone into that space a little bit to understand how some of these factors can influence uh, uh, these fissures as well. So, so what have your findings been and, and what kind of space are we looking at in terms of the unpredictability there?
0: Yeah, one of the things that I kind of conducted some research on, particularly when I was producing that profile of fisheries in the Andamans, was the post-tsunami effects of um, basically redevelopment or building back, um, where there was this heavy emphasis on basically giving aid without really considering the ground realities or what the previous picture looked like. So overnight, uh, in efforts to basically distribute aid really fast, um, communities that were closer to, say, central ports, so mostly places in South Andaman, uh, basically fishing communities there were, every person who had a valid fishing license was eligible to get, receive a fiberglass port in the form of aid. Um, several fishermen received uh GPSs as well. And again, there was no training offered in terms of how to operate GPSs. Um, there was no consideration as to how, just what effect this uh, this doubling of the fleet over over the span of a year, uh, what in, impacts that would have on reef systems and as well as on local community dynamics. Because what ended up happening was that you had a lot of these boats with very few people to fish on them. And so, more migrant workers or seasonal fishermen from the and from the mainland were basically called over to participate in seasonal fisheries uh, in the years following the tsunami. Uh, just because you had all these boats and very few people to crew them, um, and so that was one of the considerations that I don't think some of the really well-intentioned aid efforts uh, in the aftermath of the tsunami really considered and. That's something that that I think it didn't really play out that way uh, with COVID, but something that happened was that um, fisheries in the early days uh, of the COVID lockdown and the Andamans were not really considered as essential services. And so they ended up getting um, shut down pretty fast. Uh, and with not a lot of communication going on as to, when things would open up again, or even what was happening. So in the months prior to that, uh, this would be, again, February, March of 2020, when the Lunar New Year was happening. Because of the impacts um, on, say, mass gatherings in China, uh, Lunar New Year was pretty bad, and the market prices for the dollar fishery were pretty low that year. And, and so a lot of communities in the islands were were suffering the consequences of these failed markets that they were very tied into and dependent on as a seasonal bump in uh, basically income. And then again, so then when the lockdowns happened, that was another knock-on effect in terms of just the conditions that communities found themselves where there were these overnight lockdowns imposed, Uh, potentially there was a shortage of food or rations, uh, and not many people, many um, crew members from different households all congregating on the same boat to go fishing. And again, this was communities' access to food for themselves uh, that was basically being um, curtailed. And so those those sort of considerations I don't think were given adequate Um, thought or um, and potentially for future scenarios uh, where one potentially another natural disaster or there is again another um, big shock such that would cause things to lock down or markets to disrupt catastrophically um, potentially from a fisheries management point of view or even just from an aid or supporting coastal communities point of view uh, some of these considerations need to be considered uh, in order to have, ha, ha, in order to help communities be more resilient in their responses to these hard uh, shocks. Um, and so, I was. Some of this research was done uh, in large part, like I, I was, I was in Canada when when the pandemic started, and so I was very fortunate to still have some connections with communities. Um, in the Andamans, but also um, many awesome conversations with folks from the Foundation who were on the ground helping communities um, adapt and respond to the the lockdowns and the pandemic. And so um, those conversations were really influential in helping me understand what was going on in the Andaman Islands, but uh, they also helped me kind of parallel those questions with stuff that I was seeing here in Canada with um, a community support officially that I used to work with part-time and um, still had close ties with, where they basically had kind of the polar opposite um, um, experience of the pandemic, where um, they were very early on considered an essential service and so were allowed to function. Uh, They had adequate access to capital. uh, They had adequate access to uh, basically adapt in terms of all of the infrastructure that they had available. So they could pivot easily to, say, home deliveries. Um, And they also were not tied into these global markets. They had a very local market. And so a strong, say, membership base or even community that relied on them for food uh, and seafood. And so that really, it was very it was really fascinating kind of mirroring those or seeing those two experiences or those, comparing those two case studies with other case studies that I um, was basically collaborating with other researchers from across the world and trying to really understand what the, what were some of these really early lessons um, of that could be learned from how small scale fisheries across the world, adapted to the initial shocks of the pandemic
1: but that's a lot of insight to have gained for sure and it's always really sad to hear about how the what the local effects were of the larger lockdowns and because a lot of this a lot of the rules and guidelines that were suddenly placed uh didn't affect urban populations as much and especially not in the metros and like you were saying it was much easier to pivot and you know just figure out quick adaptations to it but it uh, clearly is a lot harder at smaller scales uh, especially when uh, things like fishing is not only for the economic profits but actually for subsistence. So um, what do you think about a lot of you know even the large-scale infrastructure that is coming in do you think that would also act like one of these larger shock factors for the uh, the entire fisheries ecosystem, or do you think that that is not as significant as something like COVID or the tsunami was?
0: Oh, for sure. I mean, um, the just the way the islands are arranged, like the Andaman Archipelago, it ultimately is this long chain of islands with kind of Port Blair being the central hub. Of seafood trade, seafood exports, and so that kind of is where the majority of, say, the pressure from fisheries and global markets exists, and it slowly seeps out into some of the other, um, into many of the other areas or other islands surrounding Port Blair and South Andaman. Now, if and and that principally is because. For these luxury reef fish commodities that are mostly meant for export markets or meant to, for sale in uh, really niche markets, even in mainland India, they require air travel in order to ensure a better, fresher, chilled seafood product. The moment you have an international airport or even an air facility popping up in another part of the island with daily traffic there, that's going to open up a whole new market um, for fisheries in those regions. And that's also therefore going to put a lot of extra pressure on fish stocks and fishing communities in those areas. Um, already a lot of folks in South Andaman or in the Port Blair area view Nicobar, view the Nicobar archipelago as this final frontier of like untapped fisheries resources when. For years, there have been lots of um, large trawlers and longliners that have been going there and fishing um, very close to islands, in some cases fishing illegally close to islands, and in turn, really affecting the fish stocks and the livelihoods um, of indigenous and uh, and other coastal communities in the Nicopa Archipelago. And that's probably going to get 10 times Fifty times worse with the introduction of an airport, because there's just going to be or additional infrastructure, such as ice plants, or uh, just a larger human population to um, support that, because because there, there, it just opens up the the box for more fisheries uh, exploitation in these islands that. Already are still recovering from the devastating effect of the tsunami, even though it's been now more than ten years since.
1: Yeah, that really gives us a lot to think about because we have been perhaps talking about the consequences of this incoming development from a few species perspectives or a few habitat perspectives, but just the cascading effects of it and how this is going to affect every aspect of both people's lives and the various associated ecosystems is something we haven't, uh, I think, fully understood. And we haven't fully articulated to I think, the general public or even uh, those concerned with the income and development. So um, thanks for bringing that perspective in as well, because I don't think I've ever read or heard anyone talking about that.
0: But again, like that being said, I think it's also important to recognize that for a lot of local communities or communities that have now made the Nicobar Islands or even just other parts of the Andaman Islands their home, in some ways, it's they 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 want that development and they want that infrastructure. Uh, and in some ways, it's also potentially wrong to deny them or limit their... Um, demands for that level of infrastructure development. Um, So I feel there needs to be more dialogue, more discourse or more conversation about what's possible. And again, learning from these past mistakes or learning from um, responses or the outcomes of previous shocks could help navigate a way that takes account of both sides of the story and kind of parts uh, charts out like a middle path in terms of development that that balances uh, conservation as well as other aspects of sustainability. So economic and social.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Because, I mean, development is clearly required in many of these places. And of course, uh, saying that it shouldn't be there at all is uh, is really easy for us to say we're so far away from everything that's happening but perhaps it's more about just the nature of it and the scale of it and the fact that none of um, the local voices or needs have really been taken into consideration before putting out these plans that is the real problem here. So um, so yeah definitely what you're saying mm-hmm. makes, uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, also now you know moving closer to present day where Just before we hit record, you were telling me about how you're doing some very fascinating work with fisheries across uh, America right now. And uh, it seems like you've gone from working in the Andamans and Likudwars where you spend a lot of time with smaller scale fishers, with individuals, with understanding what is happening in tighter circles and really disentangling the nuance there, looking at how history, culture, economics, markets, and of course the um, marine ecosystem as a whole, how all of those things kind of play in. And now you are also doing something at a much, much larger scale. So what has that shift been like for you? And are you particularly partial to either one?
0: Hmm. That's an interesting question. Uh, I quite. the, The shift has been really interesting and amazing because I I did not expect myself to be doing conducting a survey at this scale so as a background um I'm basically helping co-lead a national survey of um, commercial fishermen in the U.S. who are engaged in local and direct seafood sales and this project is in partnership with NOAA Fisheries and with the US Department of Agriculture it's I'm uh, sorry it's funded by these two organizations but it's uh, basically conducted by the University of Maine um, and in close collaboration with the local catch network which is this community of practice um in particularly in terms of uh, really bringing local and uh, really championing local seafood and so this survey has been just it's been very interesting to conduct the survey at this at this scale where I was basically liaising with um, U.S state fisheries departments and federal agencies for several months in terms of uh, data access agreements and data sharing agreements to kind of just get a sense of the contact that, to just get contact lists of folks that we could contact for this survey um and then really spending time conducting focus groups with community uh, with uh, folks involved in the direct seafood sector to understand how they were framing some of their their, um, their terminologies or their business practices uh, to ultimately develop this national survey that's now going out to uh, nearly 7,000 folks. And it's basically, it's called the American Seafood Harvesters Marketing Practices Survey, uh, where we're really trying to understand how fishermen across the West are really tapping into different forms of direct seafood marketing, whether that, that's direct sales to consumers or to say institutions like hospitals or schools, or even to say um, farmers' markets or um, independent grocery stores, that sorts of that sort of things. Um, so yeah, it's it's a really interesting project where it's this it's this really large space where we conduct where we. To conduct research across these different contexts, um, but really trying to ask a very structured focus set of questions in the form of the survey. And that's vastly different from what I was kind of doing with communities in the Andamans, where it was these open ended interviews, small archipelago, only like four or uh, four cultural groups really being considered. Uh, So, yeah, yes, it has been this really different like shift uh in how i've been considering research but it's also been interesting because i think if i was to say like if you were to ask me about like a common thread that connects the two that would be the role of these um the role of like yeah direct seafood into uh, or direct seafood or say seafood market intermediaries because i feel like Anyone involved in seafood sales, um, beyond say just a fisherman, um, that person plays a really important role in one connecting fishing groups uh, or fishing communities with consumers. And they probably play a really disproportionately uh, so I've been really fascinated with trying to understand just how seafood market intermediaries work. Um, and a lot of my work in the Andamans, as I mentioned earlier, was looking at these individuals. Uh, and that's something that I've been continuing to kind of pursue in terms of other funding proposals, other research. really interested in knowing just what are the diverse avenues that are available to folks um, to market their catch. And I feel like down the road, some of these findings could be translated to other contexts because one would get a sense of what strategies have been really effective, what kind of models make sense in different contexts. And like I think there's a good space for really like in in Indian systems where there is this culture of just going to seafood markets and buying fresh fish from your local seafood vendor um, one can really change that relationship or celebrate that relationship uh, and really help us understand our relationship with fish not just as a commodity but fish as food where it's something that sustains communities but also sustains us and our connections with fishing communities Um, yeah
1: um there's really so much to learn and unpack here and i'm really excited about the fact that you're also looking at the consumer side of things now uh, since i don't think you had uh, much of an opportunity to do that earlier it also makes me think a little bit about oh
0: i'm, I'm not i'm not i'm not yet looking at the consumer uh, side
1: okay okay <laughs> i'm
0: not as yet
1: okay but it is uh, definitely an interesting uh, aspect of fisheries and uh, perhaps a side that you know we ought to be understanding better so it's it's still very interesting to see how you're getting into different spaces and those intermediaries Hey, but thanks so much for this sahir i mean i've i've just been very fascinated listening the entire time and i think anyone who's listening to this should definitely read up some of the work that sahir has done as well because I think it's it's very fascinating to see how so many different factors play into things that we just take it, take for granted every single day. And, you know, looking at fish only as a commodity, but it's so much more than that. And you've been doing this for around 15 years now, maybe, Sahil? Uh, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah, closing in on 15 years. Yeah, no, not yeah. A couple
1: of decades. <laughs> right. Yeah, fifteen years, but you know, it feels like you're still uh, finding, discovering so many new factors, whether it's in the islands or where you are based currently. So, I mean, clearly, it's indicative of uh, the fact that we have a lot more to learn. But I think everything that we do know from your work is just is is quite thrilling. So, thanks so much for sharing uh, about your journey and all of the field stories and. Just a lot of information about the fishers in the Andor. So thanks so much for that.
0: Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Ishika. Like I've I've really enjoyed listening to the uh the podcast series because it's been so nice just hearing folks' voices again and just hearing their stories that they have to share. Um yeah, it was, it was it, in preparation for this call, it was kind of nice just yeah just listening to other folks' uh, podcasts as well. Oh, I'm
1: so, so yeah. glad.
0: Yeah, I look forward to seeing what future seasons of the thing about wildlife look like or sound,
1: oh, thanks. sound like. Thanks, thanks so much, Sahib. It really means a lot and uh, I'm really excited as well. And even this, uh, this episode, this recording with you has been so nice because I think you also referenced so many people I've had the opportunity to talk to on the podcast and also interact with uh, you know in real life and these are just such uh, it's such a beautiful collection of people so it's wonderful to have a platform to share those stories and I'm so happy you're now a part of it so thanks. We've now drawn to a bittersweet end to this Andaman and Nicobar series. What a journey it's been. We've travelled its geographical expanse north to south and also learned about a plethora of fascinating rare species, several found nowhere else. From the elusive Dugongs to the bold Andaman Shama, from the Nicobar longtail macaques to the dollar Machi. and oh so much about the land, the sea, the forests and the people that comprise this magical region. Thank you for joining us through these incredible conversations. The Thing About Wildlife will be back with a couple of exciting collaborative episodes that explores how local communities in the Himalayas have been adapting to climate change in partnership with India and Bharath Together and the Sydney Environmental Institute. And shortly after that, with Season 4, where we have a collection of more conversations from the diverse minds of Indian wildlifers. Stay tuned for more. Thanks for listening.